I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls are hot. I thought we had to have all the answers right now. And now? I'm kind of liking the fact that I don't. If one of us goes to war, we all go to war. Welcome back to Loving the Fighter. I'm your host, Charles DeGisco, and it is great to be back with all of you to talk some fights. We had a huge weekend uh, for UFC, and we also have a very big weekend coming up for the UFC um, with my man Cowboy fighting Justin Gaethje. But I want to get right into it. So starting off the main card, this was UFC 242, Habib Nurmagomedov versus Dustin Poirier, and the main card was excellent. It was excellent. Some very, very good fights, well-balanced matchups, just some some real good bangers. And I'm actually going to go through the whole thing. So I know I didn't give a preview on this fight, but Merbek Tysimov against Diego Fajera. You know, I'll tell you that I think Merbek had the advantage going into this fight. Obviously, he was a heavy favorite. But when the fight happened, it looked like he faded quickly after that first round. He had a very dominant first round, and it showed that he was crisper with his hands, better footwork. Just as a whole, it looked like he was significantly more prepared or at the least more skillful than Diego Ferreira. However, in the arena, it felt like 123 degrees. And when I was watching some of the prelims and I caught glimpses here and there, one thing I noticed was that these guys were sweatier than ever and they were almost being held up by their cornermen at the end of the fight. And that's not uncommon in a sport as demanding as MMA. However, it was so consistent across the board that these guys just weren't recovering. They were just gassed out of their mind that I took note of it. And then Dominic Cruz, before the main card would start, would go on to remark about how hot it was, only for John Anik to go and show that stat of 93 degrees with 75% humidity, maybe 175% humidity, and it felt like 123 degrees in there. Now, I don't really know what that feels like. But I've been in hot yoga, I've been in my gym during the summer when the AC breaks, and that it, the whole place becomes a slip and slide. I mean, it's outrageous how hot it gets. The only thing you could do is jujitsu. There's no, you have no hope of footwork. But I didn't really, I didn't really see it until the main card, and I saw with Merbek Tysimov, who at no, at, at no point did he receive any significant body shot. Was there a heavy grappling exchange that really took the air out of him? It looked like he just got off the stool in the second round and about 30 seconds into it, lost his breath and he just couldn't catch it. And those last two rounds is where we really saw Diego Fajera just take him on, outstrike him, landing the harder shots, putting on more volume. And he stayed strong throughout the fight and Merbeck just could not get back in it. For what it's worth, it just it looked like he just lost his win, and that was it. That was, he was just he was done. And Diego Ferreira went on to win that fight by decision. That's his fifth in a row. Very quiet five in a row for the lightweight. But at this point, actually, let me clarify something. It's amazing that both of these guys are as good as they are. Uh, Merbeck was on a six-fight win streak. Ferreira is on a five uh, now on a five-fight win streak. Neither of these guys fought somebody in the top ten or the top fifteen. Neither of these guys are in the top 15. So I think for Ferreira, I think you got to give him a fight that's going to put him a little bit closer to the top. And I think for Tysimov, get him back in there quick. You know, he had a long layoff due to an injury, maybe a little uh, supplementation. Nevertheless, get him back in there quick. Have him fight. For Diego, I think you got to give him a guy at least in the top 15. 
I mean, the top 10 in lightweight, especially that top eight, is so, so tough. But you got to start giving him higher-level competition. But that division is just so stacked. I'm going to get to that in a minute with Paul Felder. But, I mean, it's truly significant. It's a big win for, for Fajera, and there's just not a lot of guys to, to have him fight next. The next fight was Curtis Blades against Shamil Abdurakhimov. Shamil Abdurakhimov, I, th- I believe. Look, Shamil is 10 years older. A very good striker, but not... I, I shouldn't say he's not that great in grappling, but it's, his grappling is more clinch-based. And Curtis Blades is a very, very good wrestler. He was a Juco, I believe a Juco national champ. And he just has managed to put together his wrestling and his striking, and he mixes them up the very best since Cain Velasquez, truly. Now, his striking is not quite as good as Kane. His footwork's not as good as Kane, but he's a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, but not quite as fast. So, you know make the comparison that you want, but he has a similar style, and he absolutely dominated Shamil. Uh, you know, threw some good punches. As soon as Shamil went to plant his feet and counter back, Curtis would change levels, take him down, control him, and that would be that. So, I think that for Curtis, he's lost the big fights, right? He's lost two fights to Nganu. One was due to a cut, and then the last one was uh, he lost with the quickness. He got he got tuned up pretty good, got knocked out. But then at the same time, he's gone and he's beaten Alistair Overeem and he's beaten some of these other top guys and, and you know who are rounding out the top ten. So I think you got to give him somebody a little bit higher up on the food chain. But it can't quite be a uh, I don't want to say Derek Lewis just because I like him and that's not a really good matchup for him. It's not going to be an Ngannou. It's not going to be a Stipe. But maybe he fights the winner of Junior Dos Santos and Alexander Volkov. I mean, that could very well be the fight to make for him. Or if you want to go a different direction, maybe it's a guy like... I mean, maybe you go the winner of Derek Lewis and Blagoy Ivanov. But at the same time, Lewis has lost two in a row, right? He lost to Cormier and he lost to Dos Santos. But he's a big name, he's a popular guy, and he's still quite good. But I think that we need a little bit more parity in that division. And it might be it might be better for him to just kind of wait it out and see what comes next because you know even tied to his vasa he's lost two in a row and he's fighting another uh another up-and-comer in australia coming up here so it doesn't quite seem like there's a lot of opportunity for him i would say if he was really itching for a fight maybe the winner of walt well i was going to say walt harris but he's won three of four with his only loss being a no contest but he's scheduled to match alistair over him so Curtis Blades is in a bit of a predicament because he's had some dominant wins he's he's putting together some some good opportunities but there's nobody to fight him and uh, that's the same issue Paul Felder is about to face as well. But it was a great performance from him. He didn't take a lot of damage. And I would say if anybody falls out, if there's any injury for any of those matchups I just said, you could very easily place Curtis Blades in there. And all of a sudden, he's going to be knocking on the door for a title shot. So huge shout out to Curtis Blades. And, uh, and that's a big win for him as well. Another lightweight bout, there was four on this card, this main card, was Islam Makhachev against Davi Ramos. I think it's actually Davi Ramos. Now, Ramos, or Ramos, or he's Brazilian, work with me guys. He won 80cc in 2015. He, he actually flying armbarred Lucas Laprie, who's a legend in the sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And Islam is a, I believe, world sambo champ who is really put together and he's really polished his MMA skills. He's got the wrestling, he has excellent boxing, his kickboxing is solid, his clinch work is vicious, and he's no slouch on the ground either. And for Islam, I believe he's 17-1, with his only loss being a knockout to Adriano Martins. 
And I think as he's continued his career, he's quite young, I believe 26. He's putting together these wins. He's developing his skills. And by all accounts, everybody says him and Habib go at it in the gym. That it is a very, very good matchup. And that, you know, one thing I'll tell you with Islam is that his boxing is very crisp. The way he throws his jabs, his right hands, his straight punches are like lasers. And he's he's quite affected with them. And we saw that with Davi Ramos. So Ramos is a counterpuncher. And he just could not quite get the timing of Islam. Islam, excuse me. And as the fight went on, it just got worse and worse for him. So the threat of his grappling was never really able to come about because he wasn't able to chain any significant offense together to give him the openings he needs to utilize his his grappling. You know, his striking, while very dangerous and very, and you know, he rocked Islam at one point. Um, he hits very, very hard, but it's not quite with the same volume or accuracy that a guy like Islam is going to throw at him, right? Islam's going to put together combinations. He's going to throw a lot of fakes. He's going to land these crisp, hard shots, and then he's going to get out of the way. Ramos has got serious power, but it's a little bit more in these flurries that he lands one hard shot, right? Or he's got very quick countering, but that's only if he gets your timing. And he never really got Islam's timing. And the other thing that he wasn't able to do was get the fight to the ground. When he did really push it hard in that third round, Islam threw a beautiful flying knee and actually ended up on top. And that was how the fight more or less finished, with Ramos throwing a couple of submission attempts from his from his guard, but just not really able to mount any offense. And, I, I mean, again, this lightweight division is wild because you have two guys who could easily be in the top 15 fighting on the main card, neither of which are in the top 15. I mean, that's crazy to me. It's crazy to me. I think maybe for Islam, maybe the fight is to make is him against Diego Fajera. You know, I think that would be a very reasonable one. Both guys are in streaks. But I'll honestly tell you that I think both guys deserve somebody a little bit higher up on the food chain as well. So I think, you know, I don't know if you want to say like maybe a legend like Jim Miller, have Jim Miller fight Islam Makachev. Uh, I'd love that, to be honest with you. Or a guy like Diego Fajera. I think that'd be, both those are tough fights for Jim. But at the same time, you know, nothing spoiled, nothing gained. Like, if you want to go for it, you want to make a, make another run, you're going to have to fight these guys, and these are up-and-coming dudes who have big names behind them. So I think it's quite reasonable that you could get that fight, and you could win. You know, at this point in your career, at this point in their career, it's possible. But otherwise, I think both of those guys on the card, specifically now we're talking about Islam, they, they need to get a bigger name. They need to get somebody who's a little bit more well-known, who's a little bit more of a challenge, and I think they need to start getting that push. Islam, I believe, is now is 18-1. and one. I mean... With that many fights, and I think he's only lost once in the UFC. I think he's like 6-1 and one in the UFC. I think it's time for him to start getting a little bit more of a push as well. You know, the UFC does a really, really good job of developing talent in lightweight, welterweight divisions. Like, they do that those two divisions so, so well because you could have guys rattling off four, five, six-fight win streaks, and you never really hear about them. It's excellent. It's excellent. They do a good job with that. I got to give them credit. You know, they develop their guys. They don't rush them. They let them. They let them become the fighter they want them to. And I think now Islam is at the point where you have to give him a little bit stiffer of a test. But with that said, it was a dominant win for him. He looked great, truly better than ever. And uh, for Davi Ramos, I, I think this was actually a good fight for him because okay, it showed some weaknesses. He's got to work on some stuff. But it brought his name to the mainstream, and people were talking about ADCC, and especially because we have ADCC this month. I think his stock went up a little bit. I think he got a little bit of notoriety and a little bit of what's called the rub, right? He got the rub off from 
fighting a guy as tough as Makachev, who's going to be getting some top contenders, who's going to be working his way to the top. And again, people know now Davi Ramos is no joke. He's no joke. So I'm interested to see who they match him up with next and, and where it goes from there. But I was not mad at what I saw. Davi's new to the MMA game. He's got really good jiu-jitsu, really good top game. He's working on his striking. And I think if he can continue to develop and really settle in and commit to learning, a la what Eddie Bravo suggests, I think he could become a really dangerous fighter moving forward. But as we move forward, the co-main event was one of the best fights of the night. And it was Edson Barbosa against Paul Felder. So this fight was surrounded with some controversy because of the way it ended. Paul Felder won a split decision. But the scorecards read like this. The first judge ruled it a 30-27 to for Edson Barbosa. The second judge ruled it a 29-28 for Paul Felder. And the third judge ruled it a 30-27 for Paul Felder. Now, I'm going to tell you that both 30-27s were outrageous. And I'm also going to tell you that the general public and everybody watching the fights, Dominic Cruz included, were so off with how outraged they were at the first ju- uh, excuse me at the third judge and how they gave the first judge a pass when he ruled it for Edson Barbosa I'm going to make my point as I go through these fights uh, excuse me through these rounds so Edson Barbosa outstruck Paul Felder 24-23 in the first round but he definitely landed the more significant shots he cut Felder up and he was able to advance quite well it was, it was pretty even in terms of footwork and movement and control but Edson I would say landed the more significant shots but he only out- outpointed Paul Felder by one punch one strike, I should say. In the second round, Felder definitely was landing more more powerful shots, but Edson actually was able to take Felder down. However, once he takes Felder down, Felder was getting elbowed from the bottom. He got cut open. He got rocked. Then he almost got armbarred. It was a very deep armbar before he had to say, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. So I gave that round to Felder. That was the close round, but for those who felt the takedown in that situation earned anything... Barbosa took him down, but then he didn't pass his guard. He didn't land any ground and pound. In fact, he received all the ground and pound, and he almost got submitted. Takedowns are huge when it comes to control, but that only works if you can control the fighter on the bottom. Barbosa didn't control the fighter on the bottom. So yeah, sure, he took the fighter down, but then he did nothing with it. It's like if you make all the forward progress, but you're getting hit like a punching bag, that forward progress doesn't offset the fact that you're getting hit like a punching bag, right? You might be controlling the center of the octagon, but you're controlling that center only to receive an outrageous amount of damage. Barbosa got the takedown. He controlled that, and then that was the last thing of control he had. Felder dominated him in every single position from there on out. I gave that round to Felder, decisively. And then the third round, Felder outstruck Barbosa like 36 to 14 or 16 or something like that. And I want to preface this. I'm actually a Barbosa fan, by the way. But I, have, I do like Paul Felder quite a bit. And I've lost the commentary job for him, so you'd think I'd root against him. But I am a big fan. He walked down Barbosa, and he landed the harder shots in that third round. And at one point, he landed 12, or, or no, it was eight consecutive shots as he walked down Barbosa. Barbosa had no answer. And in that 30 seconds, Dominic Cruz was going over this soliloquy over God knows what. The, the speed of Barbosa's foot uh, switch kick or how Paul Felder maybe needs a finish to win this fight. Look, I'm going to tell you flat out, I believe Cruz is the best, the absolute best analyst there is. But I don't think he's good at the desk when it comes to commentary. 
I really don't think he is. It, I, it's not that his commentary isn't insightful. It's that he, he goes on way too long. What I would suggest if I was the UFC, if I was consulting for the UFC, he would be a permanent fixture at the desk, right? The desk being the one that they cut to for commercial breaks or pre-fight, post-fight, all that stuff. And instead of them using, um, I forget the name of that coach. Shoot, he's from uh, High Altitude. Rose Namajunas' coach, guys. I'm not going to look it up, but you all know who I'm talking about. Instead of going to him and having him come by and you know provide insight into the like what the corners are saying and what they suggest like they do every once in a while, don't do that. Have Dominic Cruz do that. Give him a minute, unadulterated. Let him talk for a minute, and then you know or 50 seconds, whatever it is. He gives his clip, then he goes back to the desk, and they'll cut to him back and forth when they can. That is where Cruz will exceed. That's where he's going to be best positioned for success. He's far too combative in commentary. And he just goes on on these long rants that he's not willing to abandon. And the technical side of me really enjoys it because he knows so much about the sport. But the commentator in me is just like, bro, you're missing the action. And you're missing what's happening to talk about what you think, right? There's something very big with that because commentary is all about product presentation. Presenting the product is first and foremost the most important. Sure, people hate on Rogan sometimes because he gets too animated about certain guys, but you know what? He tells you exactly what's happening and he cuts himself off when things occur. I'm not going to say he's right every time, but commentary is also a thankless job. The best commentary is the one where people ask, oh wait, you did pretty good, man. Because nobody's going to be like, you're amazing at commentary. I, I would love for them to, but it's very rare. It's something that needs to be appreciated as the fights go on, not something that dominates what's happening. And I believe that's why Rogan is one of the best. Actually, I think Paul Felder is really up there too. But, you know, uh, it's just, I had that gripe because I believe that is what influenced so many people to call for this robbery. And that is the other thing. The other problem I had in this, what, what in my opinion was fight of the night, what both guys is, they just, they looked so good. They did, they both are so, so tough and they, they really put it all out there. All these people calling for an absolute robbery don't, they don't know how to judge a fight. They don't know how to judge a fight because if you go round by round scoring, objectively, Paul Felder won. And if you want to judge it by damage done uh, or the fight itself, Felder won that too. And if you want to get angry at the judge for giving Felder a 30-27, which by the way, I think I agree, that was bullshit. Barbosa won the first round, no doubt. You should be equally angry, if not more, that another judge felt Barbosa won that third round in which Felder scored more than twice as many strikes all of the significant strikes, had Barbosa really hurt, had him backpedaling the whole time, walked Barbosa down. I mean, the most dominant round in the entire fight was the third round, and that was held by Paul Felder. Nobody's batting an eye when uh, that judge gave the, that round to Edson Barbosa. How? There's no consistency. There was no consistency among the judging, and there was even less consistency among the outrage. And that I find really frustrating, because there's just no reason for the, the fans and everybody to get so, you know, they get all in a tizzy saying it was a robbery. Hey, you know what? It was shitty judging. That was a split decision. That, that was a 29-28 clear-cut win for Paul Felder. You could make the argument for Barbosa in the second round. I wouldn't have been opposed. And if he won, I would have said, I think they got it wrong, but I get it. But for these people calling for thinking it's, it's, an, it's an outrage, these people thinking that, that it's, it was a robbery, for who? For what? For what? 
You know, you, you, everybody get, gets mad at the judge who gives Paul Felder the, the first round, gives him the 30-27. But not nearly as many people are getting mad for that other judge that gave Barbosa the third round, which was so much more egregious. It was outrageous. I rarely use the word egregious, but I feel like the vocabulary and the importance of it backs up this situation. Very frustrating, guys. It was very frustrating. But I digress. It was a great fight. I, I, I feel like this took away from both guys. But, you know, I read Paul Felder was like, oh, everybody's got mean things to say. And he kind of acknowledged what people were saying. I wish he didn't because he had an amazing performance. And I think he deserves a guy in the top five. But like I alluded to earlier, Felder, who's now ranked eighth, seventh maybe, there's nobody for him to fight. Everybody's matched up. Cowboy Cerrone's fighting Justin Gaethje, which we're going to get to in a minute. Ferguson is probably going to get matched up with Habib. That leaves Conor McGregor, but I don't think he's going to fight Paul Felder. And Poirier just lost. There's nobody, there's nobody, nobody to fight him. And I talked to his manager today, and it seems like the move for Felder is they're just going to have to wait and kind of see how some of these things shake out or see if any late-notice opportunities arise. You know, for a split second, I was thinking maybe Felder could fight Iaquinta, but honestly, Felder's coming off a win. Iaquinta's coming off loss, so I just, I don't really, I don't really think that's the fight to make. So, uh, you know, maybe Felder's. Actually, you know what? He should take the time off because one, with a fight like that, my God, dude, Paul Felder takes some damage. But two, there's no rush. What's the rush? There's a lot going on in lightweight division, as I've been talking about this entire card. There's no rush, no reason to break that down. But it was a huge win for him. And it was a career-defining win. He, he got one back. They fought once before. He lost a split decision, I believe, or a very close fight at the least. And this was his opportunity to get that fight back, and, and here he is. So huge congrats to Paul Felder. No controversy on this end, my man. The main event, though, guys, was really... It, it just showcases that no matter how much you prepare for a guy like Khabib, it's so, so hard to stop him. And taking it a step further, it really tells you how good Conor McGregor actually did. You know, Iaquinta so far has done some of the best um, in terms of persevering through, through the, the beatings he's taken. Uh, actually, I should say persevering through the beatings Khabib's given. Because he, was, he did a great job of standing up, and he really positioned himself quite well, and he, he kept a high pace, a high cardio pace, so that Khabib, you know, sometimes he had the advantage, but he couldn't really quite commit because he had to conserve his energy to fight, you know, a guy like Iaquinto for five rounds. So, you know, I think matchup-wise, that was a good, a good showing from Iaquinta that shows what he's capable of, and I think it was a really good showing from Habib in terms of uh, perseverance fighting a late-notice guy. It's going to take somebody like Iaquinta, but with stronger boxing to really earn the respect of Khabib. Somebody who can either get taken down and get up immediately or not get taken down much at all. And I'll tell you, as I've seen this division get better and better, the specialists have started to dissipate. There's not that many wrestlers in that top 10. You know, you have Gregor Gillespie is one guy everybody's starting to think of who's very similar to Khabib stylistically, but he's just too far down on the top 15 to really challenge for Khabib. He's just, he can't logically jump all those guys. And the other one is Justin Gaethje. However, he lost to Eddie Alvarez and he lost to Dustin Poirier. So I do think he needs to get a couple more wins and we're going to get to him in a second before he can really make it a solid case to fight Khabib as well.
especially because I believe the main guy for who's going to fight Khabib next is Tony Ferguson. But as I break down the fight, I kind of jumped ahead there. You know, I think the first round, Poirier was optimistic. He survived it. He, he was able to move around a little bit on the feet. He got taken down. He almost hit the switch twice. He had good movement. It, you know, I was like, okay, there's, he's, got some, he's got some options here. The second round, he cracked Khabib. And I thought, oh my goodness, could it happen? But to be honest with you, when I watched it a second time, Khabib didn't quite seem as hurt as I thought he was. And I'm also going to tell you, Dustin Poirier looked like he got a lot more tired. I remember watching him throw this one haymaker, but it just it was so belabored and it was so loaded up and it was so slow that it looked, and it, which is very uncharacteristic for Dustin Poirier. It just looked like the grappling exchanges were taking so much out of him. And then he, he the, the rest of that round was really just much of the same. Khabib just putting in work, taking him down, passing his guard, beating him up, not letting Dustin stand up, and just tiring him out, wearing him down. And in the third round, Khabib took a shot. Poirier really fought hard for this arm and guillotine, but he just it just wasn't quite there. He could not quite sink it in. And, and that on a guy like Khabib, it's going to be so hard to get an arm and guillotine. You know, when Jim Miller got it on Clay Guida, his chin was like halfway down Guida's back. Like he had Guida collapsed. He, he was in a dominant position. He was able to adjust his, his body so that he can create more pressure. With Khabib and Dustin, Dustin had a half guard. He wasn't really controlling Khabib's hips. You know, Khabib was able to arch his back a little bit to alleviate pressure. Dustin was flat on his back. There was just too many factors going against it. And once Khabib eventually did work his way out, he was able to, to put the hurting on Dustin before he eventually sunk in that choke, and, and that was that, you know. And and it was so sad to see Dustin, who's worked so hard, and this was really like his rocky moment. And he he came up short, but really he, he got dominated, you know. And and it bummed me out because I, I saw some ways for Dustin to win. I think Dustin's super talented. I think he's one of the best lightweights in the world. I think he's honestly one of the best fighters of all time. I mean, he's done a lot for the sport on a low-key basis. But I just don't know how he wins that fight. I actually think he could beat Tony Ferguson. But I don't really ever see him beating Khabib Nurmagomedov. I truly don't. It just is a capstone to Khabib's career. Because at this point, he's going to fight Ferguson next. And then he might fight two more times before he calls it a career. I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, he's, he's a little too young for that. I do think. I mean, he's 31. So let's say he fights two more times this year. Uh, in the next calendar year. Uh, excuse me, next... Uh, 12 months, not the next calendar year, right? The, I don't think he's going to fight before December. But I do think he'll fight by February. That's what his coach said today on Ariel Hawani. And I think that his next fight, assuming it's Tony Ferguson, depending on how that goes, I mean, you have really only two matchups for him. Conor McGregor or George St. Pierre. And I actually think the only guy to be able to beat him is George St. Pierre. I don't think it's Justin Gaethje. I think Gaethje's taking too much damage at this point in his career. Although we'll see how he does against Cowboy. I'm going to break that down in a second. Uh, you know, and Connor, if we learned anything, we should all be so impressed with how, how diligently he prepared for Khabib Nurmagomedov. Because when you saw what Connor started as, he did not have the takedown defense that Dustin Poirier had. Dustin Poirier started with much better takedown defense. However, when it came to Khabib, Connor prepared better. And I don't mean that in terms of he took it more seriously. I just think it shows his dedication and that a lot of us overlooked it because Poirier has got American top team, one of the best gyms in the world. 
the best coaching staff in the world, has surrounded by amazing training partners, surrounded by strong, big wrestlers, just one weight class above him who can fight very similar to Khabib. He had, and, and he's a better grappler than Connor in a lot of ways. However, when Connor fought Khabib, nobody really took a lot of notice that he, Connor didn't take much damage on the ground. He found ways to really mitigate how much damage Khabib did. And Connor did a good job of slowing the takedown. You know, he couldn't stop it. It seems like nobody can. But he did a good job slowing down the speed at which Khabib took it. He made Khabib shoot and reshoot and reshoot. And not to make this about Connor, it's just hard not to bring him up at all when you discuss the lightweight title, especially when you discuss Khabib Nurmagomedov. But when you think about the prep and the success that Connor had, despite getting beaten three out of four rounds in a fight that was not very close, I think it shows his true level of talent because he did what few could actually do. Despite the fact that he lost the same way, he got neck cranked and then beaten up and that was that, his ability to mitigate damage on the ground from Khabib, I'll tell you what, man, that was no joke. And I respect that quite a bit. And honestly, UFC 242 was great. It was at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. I loved it. And uh, I I mean, look, guys, Khabib, he's making his case for being the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world. I mean, he's he's truly, truly a top-notch guy. Um in regards to his UFC career. Personal choices, well, that's up to everybody else. So, moving along to this weekend, we got a fight night card. You know, it's pretty interesting. Some new guys fighting. We have Misha Serkinov. He's fighting a guy named Jimmy Crute. We have Uriah Hall fighting Antonio Carlos Jr. We have a prospect in Michael Pereira versus Sergey Kandazoko. Oof, man, that's tough. Todd Duffy is making his comeback at heavyweight. And then we have Glover Teixeira fighting Nikita Krylov at light heavyweight. But... If I'm being honest, none of these fights have the implications that Cowboy Cerrone versus Justin Gaethje does. Cowboy's ranked number four. Gaethje's number five. Cerrone's coming off a loss to Tony Ferguson, whereas Gaethje's coming off a win against Edson Barbosa. And, you know, this is the only fight I'm going to break down on this card. Cowboy, I think, has the ability to be the best in the world. But... He doesn't really let himself fight healthy. I actually believe he's far too active. And Justin Gaethje takes a little bit too much damage, but is a very fast starter. He comes forward 100% of the time, immediately. He smothers you. He's got very heavy hands. And if you take him down, you're not going to have much luck because he is a Division One wrestler. He's got amazing takedown defense. He reverses, but really, he doesn't care. He just wants to throw hands. And... It's a tough fight for Cowboy, I think, for two reasons. One, Gaethje is a very, very good athlete, and he's very, very quick. And two, he utilizes his power with, in, in combination with incredible pressure. So he's going to have Cerrone on his back foot, circling away, which is something Cerrone struggled with in the past. More with volume, guys, as opposed to power, guys. However... Gaethje's got outrageous power. I mean, truly, he does. On the other side of the equation, though, I think that Cowboy has crafty crafty traps that he sets for guys that make them a little bit hesitant to come forward and give him opportunities to really crack people and hurt them. You know, we saw Iaquinta put some pressure on him, and we saw Iaquinta have some success. However, as the fight went on, Cerrone just got stronger and stronger and was able to create more of a gap. 
Cerrone's got great leg kicks, but Gaethje's got really great leg kicks. Now, the difference being, Gaethje loads up everything he does, but he's so quick, it's not quite as big of a deal as it would be to other guys. Cerrone, when he's not loose and relaxed, looks just slow. It looks like he's fighting himself on the way in. That's what I saw with Ferguson. I actually think he's a good matchup for Tony Ferguson. But he took that fight on short notice after a five-round war with Iaquinta. And then he's taking this fight, you know, what was that, two and a half months ago? I get the guy wants to stay active. I'm a huge fan. I've talked to him multiple times now. But I hate seeing him take fights that I believe he should win decisively, if not have the advantage. But he's taking them when he's not quite fully prepared. Justin Gaethje is going to be a guy who's going to get in your face. He's going to throw bombs. And it really just comes down to, can Cerrone mitigate the damage he takes when Gaethje comes forward full force? And can Cerrone throw the strikes he needs to to put Gaethje on his back leg, keep him off balance, make him think about other shots that are coming his way that is, that's going to prevent him from being able to load up those hard shots and just put those combinations together? I see one way for Gaethje to win, whereas I see a few different ways for Cerrone to win, but I just don't know if Cerrone's going to be able to stop that one way. If I was a betting man, I wouldn't touch this. But I do think Cerrone's going to win. I do think Cerrone. I think he's been working his weapons, and, and you know, there's this story from back in the day when they fought. Uh, Cerrone actually concussed Justin Gaethje, knocked him out in training. Now, I don't know if that factored into the mindset of Cerrone. Like, yeah, I'll take this. I beat this guy up years ago. I'm going to beat him up again now. But that was really before Justin Gaethje started doing the damn thing. You know, he was a, a, a fresh wrestler coming in there and getting after it. And Cerrone was already a pro fighter who had been competing at the highest levels. With MMA gloves on and wrestling and everything that Cerrone's going to have to think about that Gaethje does, I don't know. I don't know. All the same... I think that Cerrone's got... I, I think we could see a fight similar to the Alex Hernandez fight, where Cerrone's able to get the timing and land those hard shots and put Gaethje on his back foot as Cerrone just starts walking him down, which is what he does quite, quite well. But I don't know, guys. I don't know. This is going to be a good one. I'm pulling from my man Cerrone. I'm going to see him two weeks from Saturday at the next Cowboy Fight Series, but uh, this is going to be a fight to watch. I mean, the whole card is actually... I think it has some intriguing matchups in terms of uh, viewership, but there's not a lot at stake. However, this fight could very well be the next title challenger after Tony Ferguson. I would say the winner of this would, would put themselves right there, maybe factoring in how Connor is going gonna, is gonna to fill into this whole role. But depending on what happens with Ferguson and Khabib, you could very well get an interim title fight between Connor and the winner of Gaethje and Cowboy. Because that could absolutely make sense if, for whatever reason, uh, Khabib decides to take some time off after his win or you know, there's an injury or whatever there might be. It'll be an interesting thing to say the least. However, definitely tune into this. I believe Cerrone's going to get it done. I'm, I'm going to be looking for that front kick. Not a push kick, but that front snapping kick to the jaw. And I'm going to be looking for, for Cerrone to follow up and walk down Gaethje when he does get hurt. But Gaethje's going to try to throw those hard leg kicks. He's going to try to throw the bombs and pressure Cerrone against the cage. So it'll be interesting to see what Cerrone can do to avoid that from happening. You know, one topic that's, that's come up recently, I've been talking a lot, oddly enough, as I've talked less about dating on here, I've talked much more about it in, uh, in real life. And something that, that's come up, oddly enough, both in articles and conversation with friends is how 
Well, number one, what always starts the conversation off is when I'm talking to my female friends, and, and this was uh, really evident on Saturday. We went to this place called The Lot. Lots of attractive women. Get it? No pun intended. But objectively, there was significantly less attractive males. And this started an interesting conversation because in D.C., I think it's pretty hard for women to find the guys uh, that are what they're looking for, right? The quality in which they seek. And in large part, I'll actually say some of that's true. I think because in D.C. it's so transient that it takes away some of the grit and realness that you get, which women seem to be attracted to, like uh, like guys you're going to get from the Northeast or uh, some of the like outrageously attractiveness you'll get out on the West Coast, like in L.A. or SoCal. But, you know, as you as you continue the conversation it oftentimes comes up how the correlation between education, money, just overall success is that DC has an overwhelming uh, amount of successful women. And I don't mean overwhelming like, oh God, I can't take it. But I mean, it's, compared to the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the United States, DC has got a lot of powerful women who are in charge, who are kind of, it, I don't know how to say this any other way, is that in, other than it makes you surprised if there's ever any wage gap because there's a lot of women who do really well in Washington, D.C., much better than their peers as men. But like many things, D.C. is a bubble. It's got its own uniqueness. It's a great real estate bubble, but I have no doubt that when it comes to these other things too, it's a very much a bubble in itself, not representative of the entire country. But when I was talking to my friends, what came up was how so many more women are in are graduating from college, and they're absolutely right. And I added on to that, that right now, between the ages of 20 to 30, and this is across the United States, most likely due to the fact that women are graduating college at a much higher rate, women between the ages of 20 and 30 are out-earning their male peers across the board. Not a doubt about it. A girl between 20 and 30 makes more money than a guy between 20 and 30. Taking away, the, I'm talking averages people, not individual, like baseball players or whatever. So... It's hard at first for guys to understand this, but there's a direct correlation between a woman's success and the man in which she's willing to date. And this is what came up on on, uh, Saturday. We were talking about it, and at its core, one of the points that was brought up was that it's easier for men to be unattractive and still have success with women. Whereas when it comes to women and their attractiveness, the world is a lot less forgiving. And I couldn't agree more with that. Because men, their primary, uh, the things they're looking for the most are youth and beauty. We've talked about that multiple times. And for women, they're looking for, you know, status and wealth. Power and wealth, power and status, however you want to word it. And you don't really need to be good looking to have status and wealth. But you do need to be good looking if you want to, you know, for for beauty. And, uh, well, we all know about youth as well. And there was no doubt about that. I didn't, I didn't really doubt that conversation. But then when I explained the other side of the equation, which is an incompetent man is a lot less forgiven than an incompetent, incompetent woman, it kind of was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's true, right? Because what I mean by that, you know, if a woman is only really good-looking and nice and she doesn't really have a good job, she's not particularly smart, she doesn't have any power or status or wealth, that won't stop a millionaire, a billionaire, a famous person from pursuing her if she's attractive and nice. However, if a guy doesn't really have the status or the power, outside of maybe a one-night stand, and I say maybe, 
a successful woman won't think twice about it. Because as she moves up the career ladder, she's only going to want to date people who she views as better than her, or at the least at her status. So when you have less men graduating college, less men earning money, her dating pool is actively shrinking. However, on the other side of the equation, because those two factors don't affect men in their dating, men really only care about youth and beauty, right? I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm dumbing it down. I'm not taking into account chemistry and all that stuff. But what they look for, the disqualifying factors don't change. So as a, woman, as a man gets an education, gets more status, gets more wealth, gets more power, he has much more dating opportunity. Conversely, when a woman has a better education, she's getting more power, she's making more money, she's moving up in the world, her dating pool decreases. And this is why a constant thing you see in articles, in Cosmo, in the new, where are all the good men? What happened to all the good men? Things like that. Women are staying single longer than ever into their, into their 30s and struggling to find a guy who they feel is on their level. And I shouldn't quite say they feel is on their level. Because I think we have not shifted as a society yet. Despite all the push for of feminism and equality and, you know, whatever you want to say about stay-at-home parents or stay-at-home dads, really, it doesn't seem like that is quite kept up yet. Because women at their core always flock to the guy who is successful, has power, has status. The same way, by the way, that guys always flock to the girl who's got success, uh, excuse me, who's got youth and beauty and you see it when you're out in public right don't think like arguing on a reddit message board think more like when you're out in the mall and you see a young attractive woman everybody looks or you know you could be at church and the guy you know who's a ceo slightly out of shape receding hairline walks in after he parks his maserati everybody looks at him status and power and dc it's just such an interesting dating area because you have so many more successful women than men, I think. Or at the least, you have a higher rate of very highly successful women. And on top of that, there's more women than there are men. But I'll tell you from a... So, so, so from their point of view, dating in D.C. is hard. When you get a good dude, you got a cat, you got to hold on to him. Grace was even talking about how she like was looking around almost disappointed, like, there ain't shit here. And I hope, you know, I remember, like, as I was looking at her, I was like, oh, she doesn't really seem, like, fired up about it. You know, like, if I was dating the best-looking girl at the place, I'd be like, damn, I'm the man. But yeah, she didn't really seem that fun. Looking back, actually, she didn't seem, Grace, you didn't seem fired up at all about that. But anyway, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> there was no opportunity, there was no other opportunity for her. If I wasn't there, it'd be like, well, fuck, what is there? There was a couple of dudes I saw, two. And I'm very objective. You guys know I, I give credit where credit's due when it comes to these things. Besides my table, of course. All studs there. But it just didn't... It was just the first time I've ever seen it so obvious. Because everybody was age contemporary. Everybody had dogs, which I loved. I, I got to pet all the dogs the entire time. But there was such a big gap between all the parties. And, you know, in D.C., or anywhere really... I think we're going to see this happen more and more because as across the United States, more women graduate from college, more women find that success, more women achieve the status that they believe, they achieve the status that they want in a man. They're going to find that their dating options 
are going to be decreasing unless they change their point of view, i.e. willing to date guys who are, well, who they feel are not as, uh, not on their level by their own metrics. And what I mean by that is when a man is young and beautiful, he'll find that he doesn't quite have the same success as women that are his age, right? Because women his age, the young and beautiful ones, right? I got to stop saying it that way. But women his age who are full of youth and beauty, they're interested in guys who are full of status and power. So that guy who's got that youth and beauty puts all of his energy into becoming high status with power and wealth. And then he starts to attract the women who are full of youth and beauty. However, the women, when they go from youth and beauty to success and power, they don't start dating the guys who are full of youth and beauty. They still pursue the guys who have wealth, status, and power equal to or more than what they have. But the only issue is that those guys who finally just earned that are now pursuing women who have youth and beauty. The same women they could not get when they were younger. So it's a flip, right? It's like a seesaw. When a woman was young, she can get whatever guy she wanted. When a man was young, his options were much more limited because his competition was more of what women wanted. Women don't care nearly as much about youth and beauty as they do wealth and power. However, when the woman goes and eclipses that youth and beauty and starts to focus on getting wealth and power and status, she doesn't get the guy that she thought she would want, the guy who's got wealth and status and power, because he's getting the younger woman. However, societally, there hasn't been that shift yet where she starts going for the younger guy. And herein lies the issue, just with dating, and DC really uh, encapsulates that. Society, no matter how hard it's pushed on Twitter, no matter how hard it's pushed in Cosmo and articles, at its core, it's just basic biology. And I don't want this to be misconstrued as women shouldn't try to be successful because it's going to limit their dating options. Because guys will shy away from strong, successful women. Not quite as much as the media tells you, though. You know, it's a little bit like, uh, but I see it in the gym. I see it in the gym all the time. I have a couple women who frequent my sparring class, and there's things they do much better than the guys. Honestly, at times, they do better than me. Things I need to work on. One in particular, and I'm not going to use names, when, when she has you in a corner, the combinations she puts together, I mean, Jesus Christ, she looks like Muhammad Ali. It's crazy. She's like, she's like Tyson, ripping to the body, changing levels, going to the head. The best in the gym, I would say, is, is really her and our boxing coach. Any opportunity I get, of course, when it's justified. I only say things that I mean. I use her as an example of what's, what's right. And I'll see dudes get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, you know, and I see it sometimes, too. They'll be trying to teach these, these, these women uh, like proper striking techniques and what they should be doing and keep your hands up. Meanwhile, these girls are beating the shit out of them. Full stop. So society's got to shift for guys too, right? But as this society, as society just changes, I think the idea of status and power has to change, right? Is status and power only having a college degree? Is it just making the money? Because I can tell you, if I can go back, I would strongly consider going into a union, being a tradesman, plumber, electrician. 
amazing businesses, make a ton of money, no college degree, blue collar work. Would that affect my status? I don't know. I don't know. Would the female CEO shy away from dating a plumber who, by the way, very well might make more money than she does because he's not college educated or, you know, working a, a high leverage job? I'm not sure. But the the DC bubble and the DC example, it still comes down to this very real, consistent problem that I'm hearing is that there's just not enough good quality guys to date. And I talked about this a lot in the past about how that's actually on the guys, right? Like, I I like it because there's less competition than ever, and it goes to it goes both ways, right? Either you know, in college there's like a very much a fratty culture, which I think is what people mean when they refer to toxic masculinity not like testosterone driven hoorah that's like good masculinity but you have like that frat culture which wears off quite quickly because in the real world that mentality doesn't last right in college it works because you're having the parties there's alcohol just it's kind of like this like perfect storm to just get laid whenever you want and your status kind of is derived from what girl you've hooked up with what day but as you get older, well, <laughs> you know, maybe all these guys who have the status and power, they're starting to realize, well, you have to be the whole package. Because as women continue to improve, in order for those, those guys to attract those women, it's not just the status and power. They have to maintain their health. They have to maintain their beauty. They have to maintain their youth. They have to work harder to, because the women are also working harder. Now, it just so happens that when they work harder, the women they start to attract are the ones they couldn't get when they were younger. And that's kind of the issue I was talking about. But, in the, but they still have to raise their level of competition. Otherwise, they're going to miss out on everything. You know, it's only, it's only after that they reach that point that they realize the benefits of putting in that level of effort and, and having the success they're going to have. I, I hope I'm not talking in circles here, but I, just, I find that conversation so interesting. And I, I have it as much as I can because I love trying to understand a woman's point of view of, of what it's like to date throughout their 20s because I saw it in the early 20s and I see it in the late 20s too there is a distinctive shift it goes from having whoever you want whenever you want however you want to there's just not a lot of good guys there's not there's not a lot of quality and what I'm still trying to figure out and I think this varies per person is is there not a lot of quality because they haven't kept up with the success of that person which by the way I completely agree with. I think, like I said, guys are doing worse now than ever. It benefits guys who put in the effort, though. So take that for what you will. Or are they just starting to realize that they cannot attract the guys that they once could? And that that conundrum is the part that I find confusing. But I'll tell you what, man. When I was out, surrounded by people in their mid-20s, mid to late-20s, whatever you want to call it, there was significantly more attractive women than guys. So you take everything you want to, let's boil it down to everything. Nobody's got a job. Nobody's got clothes. Nobody's got money. That's it. There was a mismatch. There was a real mismatch. So I think DC is like, just like it's got its own housing bubble. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's got its own dating bubble too. You know. Now I'll tell you that I've taken the hardest L's in my life in DC from women that I was just trying to wingman with. But... I don't know where that sense of entitlement comes from. And I should say, not entitled because they reject me. Not at all. That's completely, well, that'd be ridiculous if I said that. But entitled in the sense of, 
feeling you deserve something that you have not put in the work for. That part I don't get. For guys, it's like they have that same sense of entitlement around here, but that's because they have no competition. So when they're around competition, they get really kind of, it's just like all these like soy boys from fucking Twitter. You know what I mean? The white knights. That's your competition. Are you kidding me? You run right around that. They might get more likes on a post on Twitter, but they're not pulling home anything. They're not going to beat a woman out. In a, you, you know what I mean? So I think that's where things start to get like, you know, it's this two-sided problem. The, the lack of success and drive from the male side versus the two-pronged issue on the woman's side, which is as a woman becomes more successful, like I said, the guy's got to keep up with her. Guys got to do better. They just have to. This is just competition, right? Competition among sexes. But then there's that other side, which is, you know, maybe they're not doing all the work. Maybe they're not putting in all the success, but they don't quite know why they're losing to their competition, which isn't their peers. It's women five, six, seven years, 10 years younger. And for, for guys, you know, th- they're lucky because they learn that lesson first. When they're young, a guy between 18 and 21, <sighs> shit. You ho- this, the, the best quality dudes, and I'm talking like, especially outside of college, good luck getting laid. Doesn't matter how good your game is, it is not easy. And you're always chasing it. But you wait a decade, and it flips. Just like all things should. Equally balanced. I believe that's a Thanos quote. Guys, this was a long one, but uh, I haven't talked about dating in a while, and there was some awesome fights and stuff to go into, so I could not miss that opportunity to, uh, to get right in into that. But before I go, I do want to let everybody know that this podcast is sponsored by District Martial Arts, the premier mixed martial arts gym in Arlington, Virginia. DMA has expert-level instruction in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, boxing, wrestling, and MMA. Come by soon for your free trial and reference this episode of The Lover and the Fighter for a special discount. I also want to thank friends of the podcast, Sorello Art, who's just doing better work than ever, has more commissions than ever, as well as The Grace Effect, who is producing, editing, and storyboarding her way right into my life. Guys, this was, I think this might be a record for the longest solo show I've ever done. Um, but there was a lot to get back to. And, and, you know, like I said, I haven't talked about dating in a while. Let's blast this one out there. Let's get people back involved. I want to hear your thoughts. Every time I post an episode, guys, tell me what you're thinking. Give me some feedback. Let me know where I'm wrong, where I'm right. I'm going to, I'm going to read it and I'm really going to listen to it, you know, cause I know I say things that are a little aggressive in terms of like dating psychology and fighting and stuff. Like I'm very strongly opinionated, but I don't want you to think that means I'm not open-minded because I'm always eager to hear the other side of the story and the other points and the other uh, inputs that people have when it comes to these topics. Like I truly, guys, I, I believe, you know, I don't talk out of my ass. I, I say things that I've researched. I say things that I've uh, seen in practice, but that doesn't mean I'm not open-minded to hearing every single aspect of what you agree or disagree with. And uh, quite frankly, guys, I look forward to hearing about it. All right. But for now, I hope everybody has a great rest of their week. This should be out on Wednesday. Guys, these weeks go by quicker. Just knowing I get to talk to you again next week. That was, uh, that was pretty corny, but I hope everybody has a great one. And I'll be back on Wednesday for the next episode of Love and the Fighter.